Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I mean, no one plans to get sick, and yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and somehow, I'm still here. I also survived our stupid broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together. Because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. A quick reminder before we get started if you like the show, I hope you do. How about a review or like a rating? Something, anything? Validate me. I saith to thee. Anyway, on the show today, I'm joined by Eluren Nanos from Vaxon. Hello, I'm here. We had a very special extended cut show about World AIDS Day. A different direction for the show, but really exciting. And who do we have on the show, Elora? We have two amazing guests. We have Krishna Stone, who is the Director of Community Relations for Gaiman's Health Crisis. Amazing. And we have Damon Jacobs, who is a licensed therapist, HIV activist, and the creative mind behind Tub Talks, a YouTube series doing therapy in the bathtub with people. We go back in time to the early AIDS movement, how pop culture framed the way that we understand and accept progress, how science and medicine have made a huge difference to have all new good problems to have. And the big takeaway, Laura? How far we've come and where we're going in the HIV and AIDS epidemic. All right, prepare yourself, guys. It's a great show. Enjoy. Elora, Matt, you're seeing me here for an out of patience episode and you're not my guest. I know it's all so wacky and out of joint, <laughs> out of joint. Yeah. Are you making things up? I am. Are you high? This is no. This Why is, aren't you high? I, no, because it's Monday and we're here with very serious business. Well, yeah, because we did an episode of Vaxxon a couple of weeks ago with Ms. Information. Yes. And partnership with the Gaiman's Health Crisis. And it was a stunning show, to say the least. We'll put a link in the description for the listeners who might have missed it. Definitely worth the conversations that we had. And we were so enamored with, should we do a show for World AIDS Day? Let's get the facts on what's going on with AIDS, because it's a healthcare show. Right. And this is a cancer audience and a rare disease audience. But I think why we have our guests, which will be they're here, but they're being quiet right now, is because we're just curious. There's a lot to learn about what did happen to make things better today that are past his prologue about how advocacy takes different shapes in the 2020s. Past his prologue, indeed. That's Was that Nietzsche? I don't know. Or Kermit the Frog? It sounded very... probably Kermit the Frog. It sounded very wise. Jim Henson for the win. Very wise. All right. Welcome guests. You're here. Welcome, guys. Hello. Hello. So happy to see you guys again. Good to see you. Fantastic. Bathtub guy. Glad to see you both. <laughs> Wait, I'm on dry land. Yes. Yeah. What's the weirdest thing you've been called? Have you been called bathtub guy? Because I kind of just made that up. The weirdest thing has been Travado whore. 
Okay. Travato whore? Because I was one of the first people in the world to talk about using PrEP openly, pre-exposure prophylaxis to prevent HIV. And there was quite a tidal wave of stigma and anger that was reactive to that. Oh. Mainly being called a Travato whore because I was using a drug called Travada to prevent HIV and oh, have wonderful yes, sex. Oh, yes. I've seen the Travada commercials. Right. Yes, yes. And the weird part about it is like, I didn't get paid to have sex. Yeah. You're just like, promoting well, I'm it. not a whore. It's like, what? It didn't make This show went balls deep in like three minutes. In like three seconds. Welcome yeah, like, to my we, life. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I, balls I'm deep. very accustomed to going balls deep in less than three minutes. So <laughs> just so y'all know that, let's so get that out of the way. This is that kind of show. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, I want to start from the beginning because AIDS is still a thing. What is AIDS today? And we say that with love because yeah. we remember we're Gen Xs. We remember the 80s. Oh, my God. We remember the Dians and the quilts. And it was traumatized. It was very, very. But no one really cared about it. But we cared about it. But the people that cared about it were the ones who's I like to say that people only care about the sky falling if it's fallen on them already. And there were a lot of people who didn't believe the sky was falling. And then people started to realize the sky was but falling. Can I tell you, I really feel like my experience in learning about HIV and AIDS was very much like my experience learning about the computer programming language basic. So when I was in elementary school, they scared the shit out of us. And they said, everybody has to learn how to do computer programming because otherwise Russia is going to get us. <laughs> and I was, <laughs> swear to God. And I was like, oh my God, that's, a, I don't even know why I thought that was a bad thing. But I was just like, okay, that's terrible. I have to, and I didn't want to learn computer programming. And I was like, I don't want to. And then 10, go to this go run. To and I was so scared. And I was like, fine, I'll learn it. No, I was terrible at it. But then, despite me being absolutely terrified, by the time I was like 12, like by the time I met you, Matt, it, it like evaporated. Nobody ever said anything about it again. Right. So it was like completely off my radar. Well, Matthew Broderick solved all that. Right. It was fine. I, but and the same thing happened with HIV and AIDS. I, I remember distinctly being in elementary school, being scared shitless that they were like, everybody's going to get AIDS. Nobody knows what to do with that. I was like, that sounds terrible. And And I remember vividly them talking about what the acronym stood for. And and having to look up what the word acquired meant and being like really afraid. And then I got older and then there was that after school special with the one straight woman and she slept with five guys in college and then she got AIDS. And I was like, this is terrible. And then they were like, just use a condom. And then I never thought about it again. I don't I don't know. I mean, because, you know, I'm a straight woman and I was just like, OK, I guess this isn't. Then I had other shit to worry about. And that was the end of me even. I, I mean, I, not that he didn't care, but it wasn't like immediately on my radar. But Christian, so, you've been at this since that time. Yes, since the early 80s. And I described what it felt like as right before a hurricane, there is a quietness. Mm. But it, it felt like in New York City, at least, um, that there was this storm moving through uh, New York City, but very quietly. It wasn't loud and just taking people. There are some of my friends who um, that wasn't what it felt like. It was more like a war zone and that people that they knew, their friends, lovers, neighbors, whomever were dropping like flies. It was just dying, dying, dying. For me, it was just like, because I would go to a club one week and I'd go back to that same club and the DJ has gone and then the waiter was gone or the wow. bartender. So it was just like, whoosh. and so, and it was very eerie. And I knew I had to do something 
which you hear people today in our in recent movements, you know, with gun uh, safety and gun control. Yeah. Like I have to do something. Yeah. And so and other movements. And I first became connected to GMHC through the first AIDS walk, New York in 1986. And so then I started to volunteer and then I came on staff in 1993. So I did lose people to um, AIDS, but not hundreds and hundreds of people that I know. Like one of my friends lost hundreds and was able to hundreds, hundreds and kept all of their names. Wow. Yeah. I recall very vividly the AIDS quilt. Mm -hmm. The news made a huge deal of it because they needed to and the pressure was there to make a big deal out of it. And that was 87. We were what, like 14 or 13 at the time? Yeah. It made a huge right difference. When I met you. Yeah. yeah. And you were there for it, Krishna. Yes. I volunteered to provide emotional support during one of the largest quilt displays, the, the quilt sections, and uh, where they just rolled out all these sections. And at that point, it was like the length of that display equal to like 50 football fields, the length of wow. football fields. I mean, it was massive. And we all wore white. Volunteers wore white. And I had a purple ribbon on my, on my arm. And that meant that I could offer emotional support to oh, people. Yeah. And it, it what it, it, what was so It'd be nice if people walked around now just and like, just did that with some kind of indicator like I can just provide you emotional support. Yeah. And so what was intense about the display was that you saw this color, incredible designs and, and you know, and thousands and thousands of people. And then once I would walk over to the display, it's like, oh, these people died, you know. So it's, it was really the juxtaposition was pretty extreme. Yeah. And it's really impactful. Can mm -hmm. I, I want to hear a little bit from Damon. Um, Damon, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in HIV and AIDS activism. And I know that this plays a big part of your um, therapy practice. And just tell us a little bit. Absolutely. So I started being aware that I was into guys in the eighties, we're I around the same age. And, started. you know, there was like the summer of 85 and Bo Brady was like hot on daytime television. And I was just falling for every hairy daytime star. And at the same time, Rock Hudson was being exploited by the media after he had come out as living and dying with AIDS. Mm -hmm. And while he had been working on dynasty and that was really approached by the media in a very cruel way. And he was pretty much perceived as a leper and a deviant yeah, and not treated with compassion. I remember that vividly. And I didn't really know who he was. And I was very confused why people were freaking out to right. the extent that they were. I was like, I don't understand. And so I was but, 14 years old. And in my mind, those synapses connected. If you are attracted to men, if you kiss a man, if you have sex with a man, that's going to be you someday. You're going to die of AIDS like Rock Hudson. And at that time, we didn't know anything about condoms. We didn't really know anything about preventing HIV or AIDS. Damn you, 70s. Yep. So it was just like, OK, so you can't be gay and you can't come out and you can't ever do that. And so we knew in this country anyway, gay men were disproportionately being affected by AIDS. We didn't even call it HIV back then. It was just you were dying of AIDS. And then we had a high school assembly in 10th grade and we had this film that Whoopi Goldberg was in where we understood and we were taught that uh, you can prevent HIV by using condoms. If you're going to have sex, you really have to use a condom every single time. I remember Sierra Coop. It was a, it was actually Sierra a really Coop. I wish we could see it. But Whippy Goldberg, if you're out there and listening, I'm sure I hope she has a copy somewhere. And that 
that showed me that's like, oh, wait, maybe there is a way. Maybe there is a way to come out, to be gay, to enjoy connection, and, and I don't have to die for it. So I started coming that's out. That's really intense. It was it was a very powerful moment. Because, I mean, I know that it's difficult enough yes. to deal with feeling different, feeling othered. Um, it was terrifying. You know, dealing with your own. I mean, it, sexuality is difficult in the best circumstances. Yeah. And then coming out, moving to the Bay Area in California, going to school, starting my psychology degree, starting to learn about psychology and all the techniques. But living in the San Francisco Bay Area, I first moved to Castro and was working in the Castro in 1990 and living amongst the tragedy and the trauma that was happening in real time. The death, the roommates, the colleagues, my coworkers, seeing someone walking down the street on Castro Street at 30 years old with a cane and an oxygen tank, and then they were gone a week later. That was the reality that we were living in in 1990. And it occurred to me that if I was going to take my role seriously as someone who believed in mental health and someone who wanted to be a conduit of healing in my community, it meant more than just sitting on my ass in a clinic and seeing people and talking about their mother. It meant about getting out into the world, getting out into the streets, acting up, fighting back, being loud, talking to people on the streets about condoms, sex, pleasure, and trying to get people involved in this idea that we could, this was the early 90s, we could end HIV by the year 2000, if every single person used a condom every single time they ever had sex, we would eradicate HIV dates by the year 2000. And at the time, that end the HIV and the epidemic plan made medical sense. We were learning about AIDS in high school. And in my high school, we were allowed to watch that Whoopi Goldberg documentary, though I think our parents had to sign off on it so we could talk about preventing HIV and AIDS. But they still wouldn't give us condoms Mm -hmm. in the student um, center because that idea was you cannot give teenagers condoms or they will have more sex. Right. Do you remember that? That there was like which teachers had the banana and the condom and which teachers didn't. And it was like a huge thing. Well, Beverly Hills 90210, to their credit, did a very powerful episode about this. Tori Spelling said if you're going to let kids go in the pool, you got to teach them how to swim. Yes. I'll never forget it. It was a very compelling was episode. Like, Total throwback for the win. Yeah, that's very. You just activated that memory that I just didn't even no, know it was, was on in the there. other night on 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 <laughs> Pluto or watch. whatever. But <laughs> but very timely. Yeah, very timely. All right, so let's take a quick break, and I want to come back and talk about pop culture and its impact on the age movement. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch. Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. All right, so we talked about 
not a two and oh. <laughs> I want to talk about. Sorry. I couldn't resist. Sorry. I want to talk about the movie Philadelphia and Rent. Is it fair to say that those two pieces of art at this point in our cultural history were real flagship tent poles in societal appreciation for the issues at hand? Or does anything else come immediately close to those two things? Or do they do gross injustice to it? Those two films, Rent and Philadelphia, were just their masterpieces, and they still are. Uh, however, there are a few more films that are just extraordinary. Uh, Beats Per Minute, which was a film about ACT UP in Paris, and it is extraordinary, and I've seen it five times. So um, there are a list of documentaries and feature films really as a as a masterpiece, as a, a way of looking at all the different issues uh, connected to HIV and AIDS that are, you know, really outstanding and still educate people to this day. So I mean, I, art I, has great yeah. ability to do that. Yeah. You know, uh, pop culture, great ability to really draw people and educate them, make them feel passionate about someone else's story. I, I think television is an incredible medium for that. And it can go either way. They can do a really great job or a really horrible job. I think one of the best portrayals of HIV, especially early on, was on General Hospital with the character of Robin. And because this was General Hospital in its heyday, so everybody was watching General Hospital throughout the 80s and 90s. And the main young woman who had grown up on the show acquired HIV and AIDS from her boyfriend who had been an IV drug user. And they sh and they the story was told in real time. This took place over a year. She met him. They fell in love. He died of AIDS. She found out she was positive. And it was right at the moment that the antiretrovirals became available. So you saw over the course of years, this person who we emphasize with, who we had had in our living rooms five days a week, mm -hmm. go through this series of learning she's HIV positive, finding out that there's medication she could take that would save her life. She goes on to become a doctor. And it was just a very powerful way of reaching the audience and often an audience that doesn't think much about HIV and AIDS. Right, right. And I think that 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 is the power of media, television, entertainment, that if you're not experiencing something within your own social circle, your own family, that it's kind of like the next ring out because we do love these people that are, you know, people, not real people, but <laughs> characters, you know, they're part of our spirit, they especially are. when, they are. They, you know, meaningful. the daytime genre, oh, really. Angels yeah. in America. Angels yes. in America. Angels HBO in America. took big yes. risk with that. Another masterpiece. Yes. Now, what I think is limited in a lot of these representations is that up until fairly recently, they rarely ever portrayed a gay person living with HIV and thriving and mm. fucking and working and living their lives in a fully joyful way, because that is part of the experience as well. There are so many people no today. No one wants that, though. Well, That's I thought, good news. wouldn't I mean, that be subversive <laughs> is to show someone living with HIV who's not apologetic, right. who's yeah. not trying to make you comfortable and not saying, I'm going to be abstinent. I'm going to enjoy my life and I'm going to live my life and I'm going to have my right. fun and I'm going to take yeah. my meds and I'm going to be undetectable and I'm going to live my life fully. That, to me, embraces more of the human experience that I'm familiar with in my day to day world. But I so rarely ever see represented in media. Another issue, I think, for the early films about HIV and AIDS were that there were very few portrayals of people of color. Mm. And so uh, and then over the years that changed, but it still promoted the stereotype that, you know, this was this epidemic was just affecting gay white men. I want to know 
for those of us that are not kind of living in the world of HIV and AIDS advocacy, what's happening? Like, what's going on right now? There's actually a lot. And I want to say, because I've now been doing this 30 years, literally my first training was right before Thanksgiving of 1991. So it is exactly 30 years ago that I started working and volunteering as a peer educator. This is for me, the most exciting time ever to be working or living or volunteering in the HIV community, because we've never quite had the tools to end HIV before the way we do right now. And with the support of the White House, who in the month of December will be coming out with the new end the epidemic plan by 2030. Now, I get a little skeptical because I've been hearing all this end the epidemic stuff for 30 years. But there's some really good information in the White House and the epidemic plan under the Biden administration that actually makes a lot of practical sense that if it's applied, will come to fruition. And it's basically three pillars. One is that you provide testing everywhere, everywhere to all Americans and make it normal, make it a part of every clinical visit, no matter who you are, where you live. Every that, clinical that an visit HIV for test, every type of at least once a year for everybody, at least once like a if year you go for more a physical. So. Yeah, that for you would get tested for HIV. Yeah, that you would have that option. To I've do only so. had an HIV test one time. Well, and and it was it was like a routine thing for I don't even remember what the hell it was for. Yeah, but um, but I remember that it freaked me out. If it's normal and routine, it's not going to freak you out. Right. It just kind of becomes part of your regimen. Because it's funny. I I actually was not freaked out about getting COVID tests naturally, but I remember being very freaked out about getting an HIV test, even though I had absolutely no reason to suspect I had HIV, but it just like scared me. Yeah. Right. So so let's make it less scary. Let's take the power out of the fear and make it routine and normal that we're all doing it on a regular basis. That's pillar number one. one. Pillar number two is making sure that everyone who tests positive and living with HIV today has adequate access to treatment because we know that the treatments that the antiretrovirals available today have minimal side effects. And within a very short period of time, often 90 days or, or shorter, someone can become undetectable if they have HIV. Undetectable means that they have less than 200 copies of the virus in their system. And when they're undetectable, they cannot sexually transmit HIV to their sexual partners. They cannot? Cannot. Zero. Cannot. Not. Zero. Not really? a ninguno. There is no possibility. It has never happened. We have studies after studies after studies after decades. I have decades. no idea. No. I you equals no you. I have no idea that that's what was that's happening. Amazing. So Wait, that's amazing. So that is real, key to, to ending you. HIV. Yeah. I have to stop you for a minute. Yeah. That is a huge fucking deal. Yeah. Because... Tell me if I'm before we move on, I have to hear pillar three because this is like such good news. But in all honesty, I actually didn't know this. So what I'm hearing is if you are HIV positive, we have medicine. The medicine is going to stop you from giving anybody else HIV. Right. It makes it not contagious. You cannot transmit HIV when you don't have a viral. That sounds like. Can we exactly what we were hoping to do when I was like freaking out in fifth grade. Like, exactly. That, that sounds like don't worry about it now. I mean, not, uh, you know, don't I worry said, about it, but but be responsible about no, no, it and be, take care of yourself. Be responsible, take care do of yourself. The, but, but it's, in it's other pretty words, easy. Right. Like, so that person who is HIV positive now can like live a good, normal, full life and not be terrified of infecting an intimate partner correct like that's a huge deal huge right krishna yeah you ever think you see the day actually it is you know uh the u equals u movement was a surprise to a certain degree however it still uh comes with folks worried if they're hiv positive and they're undetectable but worried because of the stigma 
of I am a person living with HIV and I am having sex and I may not be using condoms and I have a partner. And so there still is external stigma as well as internal stigma. It's a complicated complicated calculus. And criminalization, which is why I'm excited about the new White House plan, because they're addressing decriminalizing being HIV positive. We cannot end the HIV epidemic if you could potentially be put in prison or jail for being HIV positive and having sex with other people. Wait, 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 wait. So this This is new to me. Educate me. This this sounds fucking ridiculous. Yes. Well, it is. So go back. So how did this become? How is it criminal? So every state has a law still on the record that someone who's living with HIV and having sex with other people can be prosecuted. Now, states like New York have pretty much you could like pretty much decriminalized. It's rarely ever done. They don't they don't enforce the laws. Well, states in the South do. Guess what? Solely against men of color. What a shock. So this is another way used to perpetuate racism, to put men of color behind bars and to perpetuate the HIV epidemic. Because why in the world would you get tested if it's going to make you a criminal to do so? I mean, it's a it's a complicated thing, though, because, you know, we're living through the covid pandemic. Right. And we know that we want it to be illegal for someone to go into a grocery store who knows that they're covid positive and cough on you for the purpose of intentionally infecting you. We know we want that to be a crime. Right. So, I mean, we, we do because that's that is bad behavior and we want to criminalize bad behavior. So then it becomes an issue of statutory um, statutory drafting, well, statutory interpretation. Right, right. And then it becomes, well, how do you write the law that stops that one? But then then does it stop? The person living with HIV and just like basically living a regular life. And I think it's it's complicated. I think it's complicated and we have to treat it as it is that, first of all, again, as we said earlier, HIV is not a deadly disease if someone's on their antiretrovirals, Mm -hmm. even without antiretrovirals. Mm -hmm. It is questionable. And that's an important piece of this. Yes, because there's a a huge difference between, you know, um, acting in a certain way when you know you have a disease that is able to be passed on and that will kill somebody if it does get passed on right. and something that's not because we don't criminalize coughing on someone when you have a cold. Right. So you ha- it, it's very important to know where that science is. Right. Uh, right. And right. pillar three. Pillar three. Yes, I love these pillars. Pillar three. <laughs> these are such good pillars. It's called PrEP. PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. That is a daily pill or a regular consistent pill that someone who's HIV negative can take in order to prevent HIV if detectable HIV were to enter their body. So I have been taking PrEP now myself. It's like Gardasil for cervical cancer, but for HIV. A better metaphor is birth control pills for women. Perfect. Okay. That's another metaphor for a daily regimen that prevents an unwanted consequence of pleasurable sex. Well done. I have been using this for 10 and a half years now to remain HIV negative. Has it been widely available for that long? So thanks to Krishna, um, myself and many people in New York were able to learn about PrEP early on, even before the FDA approved it. The FDA approved it on July 16th, 2012. I started using it July 19, 2011. Is it, only, is it only for men? No, it is it's approved for, for men, for, for people of all genders. Okay. Is it recommended for certain people? So or? it is indicated for anyone who's at risk of acquiring HIV, either through sex or IV drug use. Okay. In this it works regardless of how one might contract HIV. Right. Now, okay. we have a lot more data 
about sexuality and then we do IV drug use. Sure. We know it's extremely effective for people who are using IV drugs who take the adequate amounts of the drug. Again, we see numbers in the high 90s. We know really? for sexual contact, it's definitely 99% or greater 99% from preventing effective. HIV. I so have, so yeah. what if we use that? We think that's the three poles right there. Test everybody, um, treat everybody who is living with HIV and help anyone who's at risk of acquiring HIV get access to PrEP. And if we put these tools together, what happens? We get to see the end of this. And can, Absolutely. Can you just give me a little bit more information? You said it's not a vaccine. Right. Can you give me from, understand I'm not a medical person, mm -hmm. right? So what is it? So it How is a it daily work? pill. Again, so it's analogous to using birth control pills to prevent pregnancy. It birth. is a daily pill that works in my body. I'm not the best medical person to say how it works. It yeah. just means that it like coats my T cells. So if detectable HIV enters my body through any which way, through any which hole, there's no way it's going to duplicate <laughs> or replicate or create more HIV. All right, we're going to take a second break because this is an addictive conversation. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Connected to PrEP usage is the reality of the fact that most of the people who are using PrEP today are gay men. And we would like to see more women, both cisgender and transgender women, have access to PrEP. We'd like to see younger gay and bisexual men who are Black and Latinx have more access to PrEP. So we still have more work to do to ensure that PrEP is getting into the hands of folks who could greatly use uh, this medication as a form of prevention. And so GMHC continues to hold discussions and do social media work. And, you know, we still need to get PrEP to these populations. Are there like media campaigns out there focused on getting PrEP into the hands of straight cisgender women? Because I haven't seen anything approaching that. I think the CDC has done some good work. Uh, New York City Department of Health has done some good work in terms of creating campaigns 
for cisgender and transgender women, especially women of color in particular. So we just need to see more. I mean, they need to put that shit on Pinterest. Yeah, <laughs> we'd like to see it on, you know, on, on commercials, on, yeah. you know, as part of a story plot for a TV show. I mean, it's just... But again, this goes back to racism and other. Wait, racism dis- still a thing? Oh, <laughs> I read about it. Yeah, in, I've heard about it. I mean, it sounds to me like, like other also, health disparities. Well, and also know? a lot of it is, I'm sure, in some ways affected by this tendency that we have with not just HIV and AIDS, but with many illnesses. We see it with COVID even, um, this kind of blame about illness. You know, um, and it's one of the reasons I think why cancer in a lot of ways is treated differently from other illnesses, because there's not as much blame. Um, There's still some blame. Right. Right. But but it just affects everything differently that when it is an illness that you can contract based on behavioral choices, then it's like, well, we don't care about those people because it's their fault because they should have just not done whatever they did. Here's my question. So. You guys have been working in this world of the AIDS epidemic. Also, I don't understand why AIDS is an epidemic and COVID is a pandemic, but that's, do we know? Is there an answer no, to that question? No, COVID's an I, endemic now. I can't. I just can't do it. I can't do it. Omerda. That's not Omerda. That's the, that's the Godfather book. What is it called? Omicron? Omicron. I can't. Isn't that a watch? I don't know. It's an but, acronym for moronic, by the way. It is. Yes. Dum, dum, dum. Anyway, <laughs> hold on. So this, this is my question. You guys have been working in the world of HIV and AIDS advocacy for years. Is there anything from the AIDS epidemic that we can learn that would be helpful or relevant to the COVID pandemic? I think what we can learn from the HIV and AIDS epidemic in this time of COVID is the vital role of activists and creative activism. Uh, and how many ways, there are many ways to be an activist. Activists, in the different ways that we express ourselves, have been really important for raising awareness about health disparities. Because last year, there are people who woke up and went, what? There People have health disparities? And we're like, yeah. Welcome to All the party. All of a sudden, Welcome. Google, Google yeah. is like, homophobia, autophil- is like, right. what is the Tuskegee syphilis experiment? Right. And right. You know, just all of those barriers that are created for people who are living with HIV or maybe at risk of HIV and are now living in the COVID-19 pandemic. While we're raising awareness about these health disparities, We are doing our best to continue to educate people about health disparities, about activism, uh, about the ways that people can get involved. Uh, And so I think that that's a very important piece of uh, history. Uh, I would not say that they are similar in terms of the epidemic and the pandemic, because we're talking about you know, the lives largely in the early years of gay men dying. And also still affecting everybody. And it's yeah. Yeah. But there's still, you know, the health disparities of black and brown communities that that's why you see more COVID-19 in black and brown communities. So but I just caution folks about, yes, there are similar elements, but they are very different. Sure. I would say it proves that the only thing that's ever changed anything are human activists. Mm -hmm. The system never does top down. It's always grassroots up. Damon, Damon looks like he has something on his mind. Tell me. Oh, yeah. There's, 
I think people who have been working and living with HIV, either personally and or professionally for the last decades, are readily available to the mindset of testing, treating, and prevention. So the three pillars that I mentioned in the White House plan to end HIV apply very, very much to the COVID-19 pandemic. The idea that we want to do as much testing as possible for everyone as much as possible so that the more testing we do, the more we understand how to help. Again, that's not a new concept to those of us living in the HIV or working in the HIV community. No, but it's new to many of us who have never been in a position right. before to get tested for contagious disease. But I think that's so, the yeah. thorough line psychologically that mm -hmm. I see, that I work with, as well as using vaccines and finding ways to be proactive, responsible, and empowered about your pleasure and protection, which I think COVID vaccines hold, which PrEP holds. So we, again, earlier I said PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. Well, for those of us using it, for the hundreds and thousands of us using it, it means proactive, responsible, empowered pleasure and protection. And I'm wearing that on my shirt that you can't see right now. But this is the radio. So yes, this is the I'm radio. At it. Yes. So, so I think that applies to COVID vaccines as well. I think that's why so many of us in this community were readily available and open and trusting of the science behind COVID vaccines. And we're ready and prepared to get them because we were already acclimated to this idea of using science and technology in a way that prevents an adverse consequence of connection and pleasure. And, and I, I think actually that's a really important point, which is once you have a community of people who has been in a position to trust science for one reason or another and been kind of on the front lines of that, it makes that community more willing to trust science in the next phase of whatever we need that for. So I think that that's very important because I know that prior to COVID, I probably wasn't really paying close attention to like how vaccines work or vaccine technology or FDA approval. And now I have been. And now for whatever the next thing is in my life, I will kind of carry that information with me and that trust of science. We still have to remain vigilant for a vaccine for HIV. And, and where are we on that? What's happening? They're still working on it. I mean, researchers and there are reasons why. You could probably speak to this so a little I bit. Literally yeah. three hours ago. Just found out because I was at uh, Columbia Research Unit because I was getting a checkup for a COVID vaccine trial I was part of. And they were telling me they're launching a phase one HIV vaccine trial. And phase one is where they're looking at the safety more than the efficacy to make mm -hmm. sure, you know, if they give you this this vaccine, it's not going to make you drop dead. Now, this isn't the first time. It's not the first time. No. We've had a lot of vaccines over time. What the what's new about this, it's the first time. I hope I'm allowed. Yeah, I think I'm allowed to say this. The first time that people who are using PrEP are allowed to participate in HIV vaccine trials ah. in a phase one trial. And they're going to be launching this publicly very, very soon. Wow. But that shows that, OK, there's still a lot of time, energy and money being applied to finding a vaccine for HIV. And I do think that's relevant and we do need that. The other thing that I think is relevant from COVID to to HIV for those of us who work in education space is the idea of not shaming or shooting or stigmatizing people who don't understand science. And I feel like this is one of who the disasters. Who don't disaster. understand or who do understand and refuse to trust it. Well, see, now this is <laughs> right. where... Big difference. This is where a lot of us who work in HIV education and health education are used to working with ambivalence and helping people resolve ambivalence in a way that helps them to make fact-based, healthier decisions in their lives when they don't believe science or they don't trust science or they don't believe medical professionals. We've been doing this in the HIV sphere for the whole the whole 30 years I've been here. Oh my God, Damon's so 
comforting. Yes. <laughs> but there's ways to work with that. And there's ways it's, you know, motivational interviewing is a wonderful technique that helps people in a compassionate, respectful way alter and change their thinking. Not all the time. It's not always, yeah. but can help people say, maybe I don't know this. Maybe I don't understand this. If you do the opposite, and this is what I'm seeing with COVID. If you say you're wrong, you're ignorant, you should get this vaccine. You should listen to me because I'm the authority and you're not. What you do is set up a brick wall of defense and then become people, people become more entrenched in their positions. And that's only been, that's like, a smoke that was magnified by the Trump administration is like, OK, now I have my medical defense and now it's a political issue mm -hmm. that I'm going to be so dead set against science and facts and vaccines. This is the disaster storm that I've seen with covid that I thought that we could have prevented based on what we knew worked and didn't work with HIV. I want to just end by just asking the two of you, what is World AIDS Day about and what can we do? What does the world need from us right now? World AIDS Day was started in 1988, and it is a day or many days uh, to reflect on those we have lost to AIDS. It is also a time to uplift those who are living with and affected by HIV and AIDS. And it also is an opportunity for us to become re-energized for the work ahead of us. And so for folks who are going, what can I do? Volunteer especially when our offices of HIV and AIDS service organizations continue to reopen or other community-based organizations donate funds. I donate. I don't have a lot of money, but I still donate whenever I can. You know, become aware, continue to read and listen and talk and have those uncomfortable conversations. You know, yes, talking about sex is uncomfortable for many, many, many people, but we still have to do it. We still have to talk about all the kinds of sex that people have. So what would you add to that? Why don't we put aside that idea of World AIDS Day? Because every day of my life and every day of Krishna's life has been World AIDS Day for the last 30, 40 years. We live with this every day. We miss our friends and our loved ones every day. So let's put aside the ceremony and really think about on a regular basis, as Krishna said, having these conversations with our loved ones, with our kids, with our parents, with our brothers, with our sisters, with our community, generate normalizing HIV testing, pleasurable sex, make sure everybody we know understands what U equals U means, that if someone's undetectable, they cannot transmit HIV to others because you didn't know that. Most people don't. So let's make let's have those conversations. Let's normalize those conversations and really celebrate pleasure and intimacy and prevention and treatment every day of the year, not just one day of the year. Krishna Stone, director of community relations for Gay Men's Health Crisis, Damon Jacobs, prep educator, licensed family counselor. Thank you guys so much for joining us. This has been such a privilege. I feel like I learned a tremendous amount today. This, this is, is history. Great. This yeah, is yeah, history. This is history, history in the making right here. All right. Special episode of Out of Patience. We'll see you guys next time. That's all for now. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us what you'd like Matthew to cover in his next episode by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Out of Patients is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. 
Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Betsy Shepard. Our host is Matthew Zachary. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Betsy Shepard. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. <laughs>